It's a joy to be back with you all to preach the word as we continue to work through uh, the Gospel of John. You know, this passage is such an encouragement. It's such a challenge, though, uh, to think through, even as Jesus is warning us, that the world is going to hate us. But what it means to truly love him means to understand why they hate us. But uh, we're going to be working through verses 18 of chapter 15 and into the first four verses of chapter 16. Uh, the first thing I wanted to share with you is, as we get started, this quote from D.A. Carson. You know, He says, If the union of believers with Jesus constitutes a community of love, so that community stands over against the world. And we talked last week about being... Disciples who love Christ and who love one another, and by that definition, that's so far removed from what the world understands, what reality, how things should look, even what love looks like. The world has different definitions of it. We talked about that. So for us to be a community that is constituted by true love, the love of God, it is going to put us at odds with the world around us immediately. You see, I want us to think through this a certain way. We have to kind of look at our lives. We see our lives are structured around relationships. First off, how you relate to yourself. You know, you're talking to yourself in your mind all the time. We all talk to ourselves, some of us out loud, right? It's how we relate to our spouse, our family, our immediate family, those who are closest to us, how we relate to friends and how we relate to our co-workers and then our neighbors, how we relate to our community, our fellow citizens. And we can see even how we talk about those things, they exist in concentric circles that build out. Some relationships are very limited. You've got a close circle for those who are very near to you. And then they're all of these circles are based on how we relate to and how we prioritize our time, our emotion, our love, our sacrifice, empathy with one another, and even how we serve one another. So even as I, I talked about those, I want you to think for a moment about how you would list those circles in your own life. You see, some of you may list work before family. If we've got uh, an idol, idol of work, we may put family in a closer circle before we would put our own family we put work before we put family. Some of you may have friends before family, whether there's brokenness in family or you just have some friends that are closer than a brother. Some of you may have the world before everything, if you're honest, that the things you're most concerned about, the things that you give your time, your effort, your emotion, your energy, your sacrifice to are the things of this world. So I have to ask this question. When you think about your own concentric circles of relationships, where does the church fit in? Where does the church fit in in the midst of all those relationships? Family, work, the community around you, the world around you, entertainment, recreation. Where does the church fit in? You see, according to Ligonier and Lifeway's recent State of Theology report, which I mentioned last week, it says that 
surveyed uh, American adults, and it said that 58% of American adults believe that worshiping alone or with one's family is a valid replacement for regularly attending church. Now, you can talk about that being attendance, but if you're not attending church, that means you're probably not prioritizing the community of believers that is constituted by love, standing against the world. And you think it's better for those who would identify as evangelical Christians, it's not, because only 46%, or actually 46%, think worshiping alone or with one's family is a valid replacement for attending church regularly. So that's, that doesn't define the whole problem, but it, it does show that we've largely misunderstood what it means to be the church, to be this community that Jesus was talking about in John 15, as we abide in him, we love one another because we have been redeemed and we have a new identity in him. See, if we misunderstand that, if we don't first identify as members of a community of redeemed sinners, first and foremost, if the church is not right there in the center, tight and close-knit to us, then we misunderstand what it means to be a part of this redeemed community, a new family. We're adopted into God's family. And if we misunderstand that, if we don't have the church and its proper relationship to us, if we misunderstand that, it's going to be really difficult for us to comprehend what Jesus is saying and what he's warning the disciples about here in today's text. I mean, you've got to think about what the disciples did. They had sacrificed everything. They had left, dropped everything. They were following God, and he said, look, the world is going to be against you because you have been chosen and called by me to proclaim the good news of the gospel. So this morning, let's look at these verses in John 15. If you will, please stand with me. And I'm going to read John 15, verse 18, into chapter 16, verse 4. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you are of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin, but now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. I've said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. Let's pray. Dear Lord, 
We hear the words of Christ. Lord, they're difficult to hear. They're difficult, and Lord, it's a promise that we are going to face persecution, that we are going to face trial, that we are going to be hated by the world Lord, when we follow Christ. When we show His love, when we exhibit His attributes, Lord, the world will not like it. Following You means finding ourselves in opposition with the world, but Lord, even as we are in opposition to the world, we are here to proclaim the good news because, Lord, there are still people who You are calling out of sin, out of darkness, into marvelous light. Lord, may we see this challenge this morning. May we find confidence in Christ's promise, confidence in His very gentle, Lord, warning in that He guarantees it's going to happen, but, Lord, it also gives us confidence that He knew it was going to happen, and therefore we also know, have confidence, Lord, that we can face it because He is in control. Lord, may we find strength this morning from Your Word. May we find, Lord, conviction Lord, where we have prioritized the world over your church, over your mission. And Lord, may you transform us, continue to grow our hearts so that we might be a people who proclaim the wonderful good news that Christ has come to redeem sinners. Lord, we pray all this in your Son's name. Amen. You may be seated. My proposition this morning is that we would see that Jesus has called for us to unify as his witnesses by living and proclaiming the truth of his redemption with the promise that it will pit the world against us. Maybe a lot to understand, but we've got to see how Jesus has been continually fighting for unity, preaching unity to his disciples right before he's going to the cross, right before he is leaving them, he's reminding them, look, you need to be united. You need to be united under my identity, united under this identity of being redeemed by me, called by me to serve me, to serve God. So we need to have unity where our witness really will be nothing. So we're called, he's calling us to unify as his witnesses by living and proclaiming this truth this truth that he's come to redeem, but he's given us a promise that even as we do that, it will pit the world against us. So my first point this morning is this. Jesus doesn't desire a comfortable life for you. He doesn't desire a comfortable life for me. Jesus desires that we would know him, that we would know his words to be the truth. That's what he desires first and foremost because it is the word about him, the truth about who he is that provides true life. Remember, what is eternal life? To know the Father. So for us to have true life, it's not to be comfortable. It's not to have comfort here and now in what the world would define as ease, comfort, success. What Jesus desires for us is to know him. You know, you read this passage in chapter 15, and it really, it just stands on end all the false gospels that we so readily hear in America. False gospels that say that, you know, Jesus wants wealth, health, and happiness for you. That that's what it's all about. 
You see, there's two false gospels that I, that I think are confronted by this passage, this statement. The first is that false gospel that Jesus wants a comfortable life for you and that if you do certain things for God, He will give you all the material blessings and security that this world can offer. That's the prosperity gospel. And what we read in this passage, this warning from Jesus, has nothing to do with earthly prosperity, but everything to do with godly witness. The second false gospel is one that's a little bit harder to see, but I hope we'll see it as we unpack these verses. It's a false gospel that says that we must defend Jesus' name in the face of opposition. But here's what's really remarkable about this text and what happens in the Passion Week. Jesus doesn't defend his own name by earthly means. And we're not called to defend Jesus' name by earthly means either. You see, he testifies to God's faithfulness and God's provision, but how does he do so? He does it by sacrificing his own life. By upending what the world thought was the definition of power, of control, and authority, by laying down his life, he testified to God's faithfulness to provide. He shows that not only is God in control and still working out redemption for his people, he shows that God is capable of doing it outside of the means that the world understands. You get that. Jesus is calling for us to look at His example, even as He's preparing the disciples for His death and resurrection. He's wanting to show them, look, God is going to accomplish salvation, but it's going to look completely different from what the world looks like. Don't be surprised when the world's opposed to you when you trust in Me. You see, Jesus is going to show that God can bring life through death. He can bring glory through humility. And He can bring joy through suffering. The world doesn't know anything of those truths. See, these false Gospels tell us one, God wants a lie. God wants what the world wants for us. Or two, that God can only accomplish salvation through the world's means. But Jesus is saying, no, neither one of those is true. He, want, he desires for us to know the truth that He has accomplished redemption by His work alone, that we bring nothing to the table, and that He's accomplished His work through a way that we can't understand in light of the world, but only can understand in light of Him and His revelation. See, this is so contrary to what the world says, it's hard for us to understand, but yet we still we constantly want to fit our faith into a, a successful view of what the world would say would be success. But we Jesus is redefining what faithfulness, redefining what success looks like by saying, look, if you really want to know the truth, look at what I'm about to do and find confidence in what I'm going to accomplish. See, Jesus has promised that this conflict is going to come. He gives the warning in verses 18 through 21. If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. Like, don't be surprised when it hates you. 
Don't be surprised when they persecute you. Look, they persecuted me. But we have to remember, and we can take comfort, that all these things they're going to do, they're not going to do because of us, they're going to do because of Him. We also see in verses 1-4, through chapter 16, that this warning isn't just a warning to say don't be surprised when it happens, but it's also a warning that is a comfort for us. How can this promise of persecution and suffering be seen as a promise of comfort? Jesus says in 61, I've said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They're going to kick you out of the synagogues, they're going to kill you, and they're going to think and even proclaim that they're serving God by killing you. But Jesus is predicting that that's going to happen so that when it does, and it inevitably will, they'll know, look, He's in control. I can find comfort. See, when God is in control, we realize that there's much more to life and life abundant than the life that this world has to offer. And when those who are opposed to the church, opposed to Christ, come to try and take and destroy us through what the world would say, would say the means by which the world would say success and power and authority are gained, then we can say, look, you don't know what power and authority is. When the world says, no, if you really want to be successful, you need to have money, you need to be secure, you need to have safety, you can say, you don't know what safety and security is. That's what Jesus is talking about here. See, Jesus doesn't desire a comfortable life for you here. He desires for you to find comfort in His power to save. To find comfort in trusting God and depending on Him for everything. Just as Jesus was seeking to shift the mindset of the disciples, He wants us to understand this rock-solid confidence. We can have this rock-solid confidence when we trust Him, when we know Him truly. We need to know Him. Why doesn't the world believe it? It's because they do not know Him, nor do they know the Father who sent Him. Our second point, Know that Jesus isn't promising a comfortable life, the first point. He doesn't desire that kind of comfort for you. He desires for you to know Him first and foremost, to know the redemption that He brings. And secondly, we see that Jesus promises that the world will reject Him and us. Jesus doesn't shy away from the fact that there are those who will never believe in Him, never trust in Him, and that the world at large is opposed to Him. So we should not be surprised when the world doesn't like what we're doing, when the world doesn't like what we're about. The world rejects God and rejects Jesus. Why then should we be surprised not only when it rejects Him, but when it wants us to reject Him, when it wants us to conform to the world and not to God and His Word, the truth of His Word. And see, this is where it sneaks in on us. We don't realize just how much the world is seeking to make us, to conform us to it. We've got to be fighting all of that push, all of that pressure to conform to the world, and we can only do so by looking to Christ and saying, look, no, my identity is in what He says is successful, what He says life is going to come from. We've got to define ourselves according to Christ. Verses 21 through 25, he says, But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. 
If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. You see, the world is going to reject Jesus. But what we see, and we see this in verse 25, they hated me without a cause. And Jesus is really laying down here. He's like, look, their own law predicted the hate that they're going to have for me. This comes from Psalm 69, one of the great messianic psalms that David laying out his heart there, but we see the glimpses of the promise of the Messiah to come, how God would be faithful, how God would be steadfast. But in that, it says, David in the psalm is saying, look, they hate me without cause. And Jesus is saying here, look, this fulfills the promise. What was only a glimpse in David is now seen clearly in me. Look, the world hates me without cause. They don't have reason. And I want to show you what this looks like. If we look at this passage, we see that Jesus uses the word if six times. Uses the word if six times. Now we look at how it's used here. It says, if the world hates you, if you were of the world, if they persecuted me, if they kept my word, if I had not come, if I had not done. So maybe you're asking, there's a lot of ifs. Why does Jesus speak in these hypotheticals? Now here's the thing. Everything that Jesus said if about, there was no question that it was true. Jesus is kind of saying, you know, if this isn't true, but look, it really is. It's obvious. Obviously, the world hates him. They're about to crucify him. Obviously, we are of the world. We've come out of the world. We're here, aren't we? Obviously, they're persecuting him. And then we see that if they kept my word, we see also clearly it was only a small few who have kept his word. So it might not be, it's going to be a minority that keeps our word as well. He says, if I had not come, well clearly he has come. If I had not done, but look, he's done all these signs. We've seen this throughout the Gospel of John. All these signs that he did that pointed to him fulfilling the promises of the Old Testament. So Jesus uses this absurd hypothetical as in it's absurd to consider that it isn't true, to show the absurdity of rejecting Him. The world has hated Him without cause. They've got no reason for it. All the evidence is there. If you see the text this morning, if you go open up the Old Testament and see what Jesus has been saying in the Gospel of John, you can see it's all there. He's proven it to be true. He's proven His witness to be true. Yet the world rejects Him. The world rejects Jesus because it cannot comprehend who He is and what He offers to those who believe in Him. The world will reject Him. The world will reject us when we believe in Him. But this isn't as if Jesus is saying the disciples, if they immediately thought, well, okay, us against the world. Jesus makes it very clear that our position apart from the world is not one that comes by our own effort. You see, he says, if I, I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. 
They do not hate you for you. They hate you because of my name. See, our minds were once just like the world's until Jesus called us and made us see the truth. Maybe you're seeing the truth for the first time this morning. You're realizing how absurd it is. Why does the world hate what Jesus has done? He's come to bring salvation. He's come to bring life. I think at this point it would be helpful to look at the term worlds. After all, Jesus uses it six times in the first two verses here and then continues to refer to the world with the pronoun they 13 times after this. So essentially Jesus talks about the world a lot in these verses. I think a lot of times we don't understand really the definition of what the world is as Scripture says it, but we also don't, because we don't see that, we don't understand its effects on us. So let's look to Paul for some help. In Ephesians 2, 1-3. through See, so you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power, the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. What we see in this verse from Paul is not just the world, but we see the effects, the things that keep us from trusting in Christ, the things that have drawn us away. We see the world, the flesh, and the devil. Three ways in which we must always be aware that we are being tempted away from God. But when we look at the world, we see this definition, we see that the world, the course of this world, it refers to the ways of culture and society that oppose the Lord. There are ungodly trends in the world, materialism, naturalism, desire for instant gratification, many, many more. The world puts this pressure on us to find hope, to find life in all of these things. When we look at the flesh, we see how the flesh incorporates or it builds up and adds to what the world it really sums up the world and its pressures on us because we see our own brokenness as sin works itself out in our selfishness and constant search for meaning and fulfillment in all the wrong places because of our rejection of God and when you get seven billion people affected by the sinfulness of their flesh you get the pressure of the world bearing down on us but then thirdly, we must not forget the devil, the prince of the power of the air that we see. Satan, who is actively pursuing our destruction as he rebels against God and seeks to deceive mankind into joining his rebellion. You see, we need these definitions. We need to understand just what the world is so we understand the pressure that it puts on us to reject Christ. We also need to understand why it's so opposed to Christ? Why so opposed to us when we follow Christ? We also need to be aware of what do the pressures of conformity look like as the world pressures us to conform to its standards. I was trying to think through, you know, with the various age groups that we have here, what these could look like. For teens, there's going to be a lot of peer pressure. Peer pressure to, to do things that you know you shouldn't do, to do things that you know are clearly wrong. It can be peer pressure just to achieve certain things that makes you crumble under those expectations. It can be sex, the desire to have sex, to pursue those relationships outside 
the guidelines of what God has given us. It can be status before your peers, status before your parents, before adults. It could be possessions. It could just be saying, look, life's about having a good time. The world will tell you that you're just supposed to have a good time, have fun. And it will distract you, deceive you, and see that God has something much greater in store for you. For young adults, such as myself, it could be career. Getting your career started on the right path, it's so important. You've got to do that. You've got to set yourself up well. You'll be experiences, seeking to travel around the world, getting to experience everything that you can. That's what life's really all about. The world will pressure you into thinking that so that you will sacrifice the commitments to that which is truly important. It could be this desire to just simply be free from responsibility. But we see that we're all responsible. And part of that responsibility is to love as Christ has loved us, to love one another, to serve one another. Parents and adults, I know it can come across as ways the world will pressure you to be hands-off when it comes to parenting. For the youth, it could seem, oh, well, we bring our kids to youth, but our youth leaders only have a couple hours a week. You have so, so, so much time. Parents, you must be involved. You must take responsibility to raise up your child in the way of the Lord, to help them understand the pressures, all those pressures that we just talked about that the world will push on them because if they're going to follow Christ, the world is going to hate them. And you, just as Christ was preparing the disciples, must prepare your kids to know how the world will not want them to look like Christ, will not want them to follow Him in obedience. It's not just parenting. There's the pressures of money, the pressures of security for both your family, for your career, the pressures of reputation. If we look too Christian-y, maybe we won't be able to be as successful in business. If we look too much like Christ, some people just won't want to have anything to do with us. But that's not what it means to follow in obedience. See, this conformity to the world, it comes across in the, even in the ways we idolize ourselves, uh, the way we idolize our time. You go home from a long day of work and we think, you know, I put in my time. I don't owe anyone anything else for the rest of the day. And you work for the weekend, we've got the weekend, it's mine. But all of these things, all of these fail to understand that this life that we've been given is a gift from God. We don't own anything. We don't own our time, but even what we do, how we use our time, how we use our life, it is God's to be used. Are we going to give it to Him and find joy in living as He has called us and created us to live, or are we going to continue to deny Him? This whole point is that Jesus promises the world will reject Him and us. We've got to understand that the world's going to put all of this pressure on you, all of this pressure on me, so that we do not live as Christ would have us to live. The world is seeking to make us focus on it, so when we don't focus on the world, don't be surprised when you find yourself at odds with it. When you 
seek to make your focus clearly on Christ, on His purposes to serve and to continue the ministry that He began, just as He's telling the disciples here. Don't be surprised when the world will come and attack you and seek to beat you down to keep you from doing that. Jesus has promised that that is coming. To keep building on this, we're going to move to this third point. Not only has He promised the world will reject Him, but He's promised that conflict is going to come to those who follow Him. In verses 1-4 through of chapter 16, we see the purpose in verse 1. He's doing this so that we would, He'd be able to keep us from falling away. But He says they'll put you out of the synagogues. You know, this is something that I don't know if we even comprehend today. It's, it's something even bigger than how we take membership. And that they're going to be kicked out of the center of their community life. Kicked out of the thing which has brought their family together, their extended family together, their, their local community. They will get kicked out of the synagogue, Jesus says, because they follow Him. You see, this conflict, it may include us being con- conflicted and having lots of anger extended towards us by those who are close to us. This conflict may include those who are the closest to us. And this isn't the only text where Jesus warns about this. I don't know if we're prepared, I hope we're prepared to hear this. Matthew 10, 34, this is one of the things that you read about Jesus, what He says. He doesn't promise just, oh, love one another, love, be nice. He says this in Matthew 10, verse 34, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Those are some of the scariest and hardest words to hear in all of Scripture. But they're coming straight from our Savior, and it ties directly into what we see in this warning Jesus giving in chapter 15 and 16. You see, when we think about those concentric circles, what Jesus is saying is, look, I have to be at the center of that. If I'm not at the center of that, then all of these other things, they're going to conflict. If you put family, and he says even if you put your father, mother, your son, or daughter, and you consider them more worthy of me, worthy than me, if you do that, you are not worthy. You don't understand who I am. You're rejecting me as Lord and Savior. John Piper sums it up this way. He says, radical, to obe- radical obedience to Jesus relativizes natural relationships. This means that following Jesus often introduces ambiguity and sorrow and pain into family relationships. He says, if you're looking for a religion that will make all your relationships clearer and smoother and happier, you will find a great obstacle in Christianity. See, this doesn't mean that we're put at odds and we're called to hate our family. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is, look, we're so affected by the world. You're so consumed by your flesh. Well, you've got to understand that when you follow me, 
It's going to push everybody away from you because they will see the truth. And the truth, what do we see in the beginning of John? Mankind does not like the darkness and they do not like, we do not like when the light exposes the darkness within us. So what are we called to do? What are we called to do? We're called to suffer. We're called to be faithful. We're called to trust Him. We're called to, as we read in Ephesians 4 last week, we're called to speak the truth in love. See, when we speak the truth in love, we are loving those who don't like us, who are opposed to the new standards, the new principles, and that we are, are saying, this is our new identity in Christ. We're called to live according to God's way. I'm living God's way, not my own way anymore. And that means I can't do the same things that you're doing. Even if it's your family, if it's your, your parents, if it's your brothers and sisters, even if it's your kids, that's one of the most important ones. You say, look, the way you're living is not how God would have you to live. You need to hear the truth, and I won't have anything to do with the things that are against God, and you've got to understand that. And even if it causes that conflict, we shouldn't be surprised by it because Jesus has promised that conflict would come. In Luke 14, Jesus said, 20, verses 25-26, through Now great crowds accompanied Him, and He turned and said to them, If anyone comes to Me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be My disciple. See, following Christ, it radically reorients what is most important for us. This conflict may include those who are closest to us. This conflict that Jesus promises. Secondly, this conflict will reorient how we prioritize possession, status, and any other form of worldly gain. Later on in that same passage from Luke, we see Jesus say this, So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. If our status, our career, our possessions, our worldly attainments, if they go above God, if they're more important to us than following Christ, listening to Him, obeying Him, He says we cannot be His disciples. Thirdly, we see the conflict will come. But the conflict will come as we are faithful to show the results of redemption. See, he says, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. See, as we mirror Christ, the world is going to hate us. The world is going to be against us as we look more and more like Him. Carson summarizes it this way. He says, Christ's followers will be hated by the same world partly because they are associated with the one who is supremely hated and partly because as they increase in the intimacy, love, obedience, and fruitfulness depicted in these preceding verses, they will have the same effect on the world as their master. What does that mean? It means that as we are abiding in Christ last week, the last two weeks, as we abide in Christ more and more, 
we will have an effect because we'll grow in our love for one another. We'll grow in our love and self-sacrifice. And the world doesn't like that. Especially when our self-sacrifice points to the only one who brings life. As it condemns, it exposes sin. The world will not like it. So we should not be surprised when this conflict comes. But we can know with confidence that when this conflict is coming, it's coming as we are faithful to show the results of Christ's work in us. Two things should be noted in this, though. Conflict is to be expected as we demonstrate the character of Jesus, characteristics of Jesus more and more in our lives. But secondly, ultimately the conflict that the world will have with, have with us will be with Jesus in us. So this isn't an excuse to support any type of unchrist-like behavior. In other words, speak the truth, but don't be a jerk. We're supposed to speak the truth in humility because look, Christ chose us even when we were in the world. As we talked about last week, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So that means we can speak the truth. We can stand against the world for the world. It is not the church against the world. Our mindset must be the church for the world in the power and truth of Christ even when the world doesn't want to hear it. Even when our families don't want to hear it. Even when our, our friends, those closest to us, don't want to hear it. We aren't against them. We're for them so that they might hear the truth of the Gospel. Even if it means that they're against us, they hate us, they condemn us. And finally, Jesus promises suffering because it's an opportunity to show God's sovereignty as He calls people to new life. The promises of 16 verses 1-4 through 4 provide us perspective on the reason for this warning in light of the promise of the Holy Spirit in chapter 14. See, verses, verse 26, we see, But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, He will bear witness about Me, and you also will bear witness, because you have been with Me from the beginning. You see, this suffering, us stepping into this opportunity to bear witness, we're guaranteed the suffering, but we're guaranteed the opportunity to proclaim what Christ has done. See, Jesus has been preparing the disciples. This, this whole passage, the last two months as we've been working through this last discourse, it's building up to the moment that Jesus gets betrayed, that He's separated for them, from them, and He's saying, look, this is what I'm calling you to do. This is what the work I've been doing all along. It's been training you, preparing you to proclaim this good news. As he prepares them, he warns them. But he warns them to show that he knows all that's going to happen. He warns them so that they can see that it's all a happening according to the wisdom of the One who knows how to work all things out for good, our good, and God's glory. Even the detail of verse 4 should get us. He doesn't just say, when the hour comes, when this happened. But this is what's fascinating to me. He says in verse 4, but I've said these things to you that when their hour comes. It's almost like Jesus is saying, look, 
they're going to think it's their time. The world is going to think it's its time. You can hear that every day. As people talk about Christianity and how it's, it, you know, Christianity is not relevant anymore. This faith that you talk about, it's not relevant. We've moved beyond that. We've got science. We've got humanism. We've got success. And we don't, we don't need the, the weakness of religion anymore. Jesus promised that that mindset would be there because He says, look, when their hour comes, there's irony here, you may remember that I told these things to you. The world thinks and wants to make us think that we don't need Christ, that we don't need to obey Him. The world foolishly thinks that it is in control of all things. We are called to be different from the world because we've been called out of the world. We've been called to believe this Gospel because we know that Jesus has brought about salvation apart from worldly means. Because He brought about life from death. We know that He's called us to live a life of obedience that looks different from the world because we have eternal life. Life with our Creator, with our Father. And the things of this world don't mean anything compared to that. We can sacrifice all that we have. We can live in conflict with even those who are closest to us knowing that we know the truth for we know our Creator and that the best thing for even those who love us, who are opposed to us, when our family is opposed to us, when our friends are opposed to us, when our community is opposed to what we stand for, if we stand for Christ, the most loving and kind and gracious thing we can do is to continue to stand for Christ even if it means persecution, even if it means our own death. Do we have that kind of faith? Do we have and live that kind of obedience? If Jesus can boldly speak these truths in the face of His death, surely in light of His resurrection, we can boldly in faith stand to proclaim the goodness and loving kindness of our Savior. We have this awesome privilege. A privilege to speak the truth, to boldly stand for the truth, to suffer for the truth. That's why James can say, count it all joy, brothers, when you face trials of various kinds, when you are persecuted, when you suffer for the sake of the name of the Lord. We can suffer through that because our greatest witness is not in our success. Our greatest witness is not in a power and authority. Our greatest witness is humility that recognizes the love that God had, had for us and recognizes through repentance the redemption that He's accomplished for us. I don't know about you, but this is a hard passage. Because I find myself distracted by the things of the world every day, as I'm sure each one of you do. It's so easy to think, man, this is so important, or I just can't step into this difficult situation. What are we called to do? 
We're called to trust Christ more. We're called to to exemplify His love more, even when it costs us. But here's the thing. Whatever it costs us here on this earth is laying up treasures in heaven. If we're willing to live for His glory, there's so much more in store for us than anything this world has to offer. If we're willing to proclaim this truth, we must realize that the world is going to be opposed. But we should also take confidence that if the world is opposed, it's just another fulfillment of one of Christ's promises. Let's not be surprised. Let's live boldly for the sake of the gospel. And may Christ use us, whether through sacrifice, whether through persecution, whether through suffering, even in death. May Christ use us to proclaim the good news so that many more may believe in Him. That's my prayer for myself. That's my prayer for this church. May we be a people who proclaim the goodness of God, the righteousness of God, and the justice that He's brought about through sending His Son. Let's pray this morning.